Well, Matthew 6. We're in Matthew 6. Um, the Lord's Prayer is where we're at. So, um, so we're going to be in verse 10 today. We're going to be in the Lord's Prayer for a little while. We're kind of taking each concept piece by piece as we've gone. It's more of an in-depth study into the Lord's Prayer. Um, and as you read through the Lord's Prayer, there are very clear uh, concepts, if you will. And um, last week, Mike taught on um, the first portion, which was um, our Father, who art in heaven. Um, I don't know why I quoted that in King James, but <laughs> it's my childhood coming back. But our Father is in heaven, um, hallowed be thy name, right? Um, and so that, the, the whole idea being that God is our heavenly Father. He's more personal than just simply God. We're to pray to him as our actual Father. And we still have the reverence with him. He is in heaven, He's in heaven, so he is above us. He is much uh, much greater than us. He created us. So there's that reverence there, but there's also this openness. God himself, Jesus in, man, in human flesh, told us to talk to God as if he is our father. And so there's that, that, personal, that personal, familiar touch to it. And that's what Mike taught on last week. But as we've been going through this sermon, we've seen that God is, um, or, well, Jesus God, is addressing a lot of issues in the day. And for the most part, he's been kind of almost sort of like, if you could take a definition of the Pharisees <laughs> and then flip it, that's sort of what Jesus has been saying. So sort of like, I'm going to describe the Pharisees, and I'm going to say, don't do any of those things. It's kind of what he's been doing. And he's doing that here in prayer as well. That just continues. That's the context of the sermon that we've been reading through. And the prayer continues this way. He is correcting improper prayer in their day. That's the context that we come into, um, come into this passage with. And after saying, um, pray like this, he adds some extra context in by saying, our Father. He uses a plural term. He uses a plural term for um, when we are to pray to God, we're not to pray from necessarily from our own perspective. We're to pray from a plurality in our minds, in our hearts. And throughout the whole prayer, we see this. We see terms like we, are, us, all the way throughout. It's a very um, larger, grander view than ourselves throughout this prayer. It makes the ideals that we're praying about bigger than ourselves, bigger than the individual. It elevates our thoughts about the goals of the Christian community here where we're living, here on earth. It is intended, the very implication of are we, us, is that it's intended to bring a unity of purpose. We are to have a unity of purpose. Us, all of us believers, we have all sorts of different backgrounds, and yet we have this one singular unity of purpose. And that's what we were to come into prayer with. Besides giving us a sense of unity and purpose, um, there's another benefit to praying this way for the believer, for the individual. It actually benefits the individual, almost in a contrast um, or a contradiction, if you will, of terms. We're praying for the benefit of all, and yet it actually benefits the individual as well when we pray in that way rather than the personal. And there is personal prayer as well, but Jesus is giving us this view of when we enter into prayer, we're not just supposed to think of ourselves, we're supposed to think of the brothers and sisters as a whole, Christ's body as a whole. It's um, the idea of coming into 
prayer with um, a common goal reminded me of a World War II example I was given by a good friend of mine, Jared Jasensky. He's a pilot and a history buff. He's really into history. He gets to fly over the place. And he was in uh, D.C. and he got to see these, I think it was in D.C., he got to see these cool old documents from World War II. And um, they were actually uh, polls from from America prior to America's involvement in World War II. And it was polls specifically saying, should America get involved with what's going on over in Europe right now? Should we be interceding with Europe against Germany? Should we step in? And in those polls, at the very beginning, very little agreement. Nobody wanted to be involved. Very, very, very little. And then as months went by, and as stories started to come out of what was happening over there, you started to see each new poll, there was more agreement. More agreement, more agreement. All the way to the point where by the time the war started, it was overwhelming. America wanted in. The American people wanted in. Pearl Harbor happened, and of course, that was the catalyst. We were in. But we started to see this increase in unity. It started off with almost no unity at all. Nobody wanted to. No one was unified under the idea of let's stop Germany. Almost no one was. But by the end, we joined, and God used, I believe, God used our nation and nations in Europe and around the world to put an end to a great evil. That's what Americans were able to um, be part of and accomplish through that unity of purpose, if you will. It brought a unity of purpose to America. And it became a greater ideal. World War II starts. Well, we need bombs. All the men are at war. What are we going to do? The women... We're going to go to factories. Never been in one. At that time, it was uncommon for a woman to be in a factory. We're going to run the factories, all the factories, ran by women, taken care of. We need food. People came together. We're going to do food drives, send them to the troops. Ammunition. All these things happened because there was this one goal that everybody agreed on. Everybody agreed on this one singular goal. We had this unity of purpose, and it was this one single goal. And so anytime there was an opportunity that contributed to that goal, people were in because their hearts were unified in that single goal. That's the beauty of what unity of purpose can can give us. But today, the call to unity can actually feel manipulative. And maybe you guys, you know, I, I don't know if you guys watch the political sphere much. Maybe you'll relate to me on this, at least with my generation. I'm, a, I'm an older millennial. I'm on the top end of millennials. For me, the political sphere is kind of terrible. And I think most people would agree with that. But when I hear the word unity, it often feels manipulative. It feels like a manipulation. It feels like they want me to buy into something I don't want to buy into. And most of my generation feels that same way I feel, I think. That seems pretty common issue. And this is because, going all the way back to things like the Vietnam War, where we started to see a separation of agreement, the war in the Middle East that's been going on for, feels like forever. Been a lot of disagreement on that. The way our elections are conducted <laughs> recently, been a lot of disagreement on that. Scandals like Watergate and the Clinton emails. Most of us in America find ourselves on one side or the other of the two political parties, and there are enough scandals and things that might be scandals on both sides of the political p- sides that takes our trust away from our human leadership. 
I don't know how you guys feel, but right now, the only thing I am actually really scared of is totally agreeing with anybody politically on everything. <laughs> so like, there's just no way either side's 100% right. Or, you know, the third parties that no one knows about, like the independents. They're like, no, there's no way any of them are completely right. For a millennial, that's our view. Scared to totally agree with anybody. If I totally agree with anybody, I'm probably off somewhere, right? And it's enough to completely soil the taste of unity for an entire generation. We are naturally against the idea of agreeing with each other in my generation. And I think that's continued throughout most of us, especially as, the, as political things unfold. I think that continues. And it's, it's really a clever way that the enemy has come in and pushed us away from the idea of unity being a good thing. Pushed us away from the idea that we can come together, lock arms under a common goal, and that that's a good thing. And that not being unified is actually a bad thing. It's a clever, clever trick from the enemy. Fortunately, we still have examples if we're willing to look back at them. World War II still stands as a mark of when we stand together for a good purpose, a pure purpose, a right purpose, things can get done. Things can get done. All you have to do is look through Scripture at all the times that the, all the tribes of Israel would unify under God and the amazing things that God would accomplish through them. Overwhelming numbers against them didn't matter. They were unified under God, and so God brought the power and God did the work. We have that ability for unity ourselves because we know that the source is pure. The source is pure. We don't have politicians in heaven. We have a God who created everything and is always right. So when we pray, we are us, and we think of the whole body of Christians. Yeah, there's some bad apples in the bunch. Not everyone who professes God actually believes in God or desires to do his will. But when we say, Lord, our Father in heaven, thy will be done, your kingdom come. We can pray that knowing that there are many thousands, tens of thousands probably, millions of believers around the world right now who can agree with us in that common goal, your will be done, and that they mean it. We are surrounded by brothers and sisters with a common goal. We don't have to allow the enemy to put that foul taste in our mouths. He doesn't get to win this one. We can have a one, sp uh, one spirit. Scripture actually talks about having one spirit. Um, the enemy tries to use broken men and women to distort a good thing into a bad thing. But a body of believers that is one spirit sounds like the church in Philippi. And Paul in chapter 1, verse 27 says, Just one thing, as citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and, excuse me, whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I will hear about you that you are standing firm in one spirit, in one accord, contending together for the faith of the gospel, not being frightened in any way by your opponents. This is a sign of destruction for them, but of your salvation, and this is from God. The church of Philippi had this great unity. Paul goes into length about it. In the, in, the, um, in the book of Philippians. He goes to length about it, about the joy that they share through their unity, through their common goal, the way that they are in one spirit. He goes to great lengths about it and what joy it brings him to see that, 
to see people coming together unified under Christ. Today in our church, um, it looks like us praying for the hearts to get the three little ones full-time in their house. And we've seen that. They don't have full custody yet, but, but the girls, they're in the house full-time. We've seen God move. It also looks like us praying for Ellie's mom, and she gets healed the same day. Miraculously, doctors had no idea what was going on. It's us showing up to help for a community event like Art on the Green and the organizers being blown away that a church or a group of four churches would come just to help them out when they were short-staffed. Blew their minds. They had a foul taste of Christians before that, and they left saying, asking questions, actually, asking me to share the gospel with them. Detail for details. Crazy. This unity. We go in to do things under Christ, and things happen. We lifted these things up together, and we did these things together, all with the common goal of furthering God's kingdom and accomplishing his will. Now Jesus is teaching us that um, this is the same spirit by which we are to pray in private as well. Not necessarily in a group. Even in our private, in our private space, in our quiet time, we should be praying as if we are praying, interceding for the whole body, as if we are interceding, interceding for Christians all over the world this wonderful body that we're part of. It's sort of like when people, again, would fight for America. They were fighting for the whole country. Didn't matter who was just in their community. It was a whole nation united. And we are to pray in the same unity. Same unity. We are to pray as though we are speaking with God as a whole, and in today's text, we'll see that we are to have the common goal of God's kingdom arrival here on earth. That's the goal. And his will be done here on earth. And so there's the, there's the way that we get God's kingdom here is by following his will. So we have the kingdom is the goal. The will is the way to that kingdom being here on earth. That's what we're going to see this morning. And he says, uh, done in, on earth as much as it in heaven, which again, is just to say always. Not a whole lot of angels not doing God's will in heaven. It's just always, immediately on the spot, God's will always being done. So let's start with your kingdom come. Jesus' whole sermon is about the heart, not just the words or actions. He corrected the hypocrites who would stand and pray on busy streets to be seen um, by telling us to pray this way. The purpose of this prayer is so that he might gain our hearts for his kingdom and purposes. That's his goal. He wants our hearts. And by praying this way, God actually thinks he's going to gain our hearts. And they say God actually thinks that's kind of facetious because he's right. He's always right. When he tells us to do this, this will happen, he's correct. It's 100%. When we pray with our hearts that we are specifically seeking for the common purpose of his kingdom, he is going to gain our hearts. We're going to start seeing everything in our lives as an opportunity for kingdom. We're going to start thinking of things in our day-to-day that's coming up, things we have to do in our work, in our families, in our day-to-day life. We're going to start viewing them as opportunities for God's kingdom here now. And through our continued reading of Scripture, we're going to understand what that means more and more. He uses his word, and he uses our prayer and the condition of our hearts to make us better tools for his kingdom for his very purposes. So what does it mean to pray in our hearts, your kingdom come? It means that we are to actually desire and seek after God's kingdom being here on earth today. It means that we seek the Lord. We are to be thinking that as a part, um, 
of his body here on earth, I am to act as if I am already serving his kingdom now with what has been placed before me. We don't think of his kingdom as something that is far off in the distance. We want his kingdom here on earth now as it's in heaven. We act like kingdom is happening right here in Coeur d'Alene. It starts with us. We are the peace of the kingdom that is here on earth right now. We are part of God's kingdom. Job, family, finances, the things that I consume, the things that I say, the things that I do should belong in his kingdom. The things I'm doing, saying, putting my finances towards, the, the actions, the time that I'm spending wouldn't belong in God's kingdom. It doesn't belong here. Not with us. We have this one life to live where we get to strive for Christ the way he strove for us. Once we die and we go to eternity, we no longer get the option to suffer for Christ anymore. There is no suffering in heaven. There is no suffering in eternity. Suffering is done. It's over in heaven. We get one opportunity to give back to Jesus in the way he gave to us. It's our only opportunity. If our hearts belong to him, if we love him, that's naturally going to prick our hearts and give us a desire to do exactly for him what he did for us. That starts with recognizing what he did for us. Going to the gospel often, understanding the way he sacrificed for us should inspire that love for him back. And so when we pray, your kingdom come, and we know what he did to bring kingdom should inspire that. What does God's kingdom look like? Well, we've been going through a whole sermon about what Jesus said his kingdom looks like. It looks like the poor in spirit being blessed. The poor in spirit around us being blessed by us, if we were to do kingdom work. Those who mourn being comforted. Those around us who are mourning, and in the context of mourning, we saw that it was specifically talking about people who would mourn over their sin. People who mourn over their sin should be comforted by us not trampled down, not put out, not made to be the awkward person in church because they're the the sinful one. We're all the sinful one. Christ died for all of us. The one who mourns over their sin should be, in a sense, that heart condition should be celebrated and they should be comforted. The humble being blessed and inheriting the earth. That's what it should look like with us. Do we see the humble as worthy of a blessing and worthy of an inheritance? Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness being filled. That should be us. We should be hungry and thirsting for righteousness. And when we see someone who is hungering and thirsting for righteousness, we should be there to fill them up. This is what we do for each other. It's the body. This is what kingdom work looks like. The merciful being shown mercy. It looks like God's people being pure in heart and peacemakers. All these things Jesus said in his sermon leading up to this point. This is what God himself in a man flesh said the kingdom of God looks like. This is the work he came to do. If in my my heart I am praying those things would happen here on earth to the point that I actually mean it, then when the time arises that I get the opportunity, I'm going to see it as an opportunity for the kingdom. Just like in World War II, when something would pop up for the war, come support the war in this way, they would automatically see this as this is a way I can support the war because their mind was on it. Their hearts were on it. They had loved ones over there fighting most likely. 
It's on their mind all the time. If we get our heart to the point where we are constantly praying that God's kingdom would come, then as things arise, we're going to start seeing it through that filter. Our interactions with each other are going to be viewed through that filter. When I get the opportunity, I will bless the poor in spirit and pray that God blesses them. I will comfort those who mourn and pray that God comforts them. I will humble myself, bless the humble, and pray that God blesses them. I will hunger for thirst and righteousness and pray that those who do the same will be filled, and I will be merciful. I will be pure in heart and a peacemaker because I have set my heart and my mind on God's kingdom, and that has become my goal, my purpose. I will start to look more like Jesus. I will not obtain perfection here on earth, but I will look more like Jesus, and that's the goal, and that's for all of us. We will look more like Jesus. We will accomplish his will. And then finally we come to your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your will be done. This is the second half of our passage today. So the kingdom was the goal. Our goal is that his kingdom would come here. And then the way we get there is through his will. His will here on earth, exactly as it is in heaven, happening every single time, our goal is a very lofty one. That in every situation that we're given where we can follow God's leading, we do it. 100%. Again, I'm not preaching that we're going to obtain perfection here. You're going to be asking God for forgiveness of sins. I'm going to be asking God for forgiveness of sins until the day I die. (laughs) That's just going to happen. Jesus was the only one to do it. But our goal will be his will to be done here on earth always. And if we make that our goal, we're just going to get closer to him every time we grow a little. In a practical sense, what does that look like? What does it mean? How do we apply that to our lives? How do we, in a very simple, practical, common sense way, seek to do God's will every day in our hearts, every day in our lives, every day in our schools, in our churches, in our workplaces, in our families? We all want to do well in these areas. We all want to be an encouragement to our community. We all want to be an encouragement in our church. We all want to be the father that leads, the the mother that leads, the the children that um, excel above other children that that follow their, their, uh, their parents leading towards Christ. All of us want to do well. So what does that actually look like? In the simple and practical sense, we are, again, to filter everything we do through God's will, and whether or not it is aligned with his kingdom. That's easy to say. That's really easy to say. Kind of. I sort of stumbled. But it's like most people could read that really easily. (laughs) That's pretty easy to say for most humans. But are we actually in the habit of not just praying that we would be in his will today, but actually thinking through our day what it's supposed to look like and aligning it with his will putting it through his filter so that we are actually doing his will. Do we even know what God's will is for our day? There's a lot of days. There's been a lot of days in my life. I was sharing with um, Christian, who's leading us in worship today. I was sharing with him yesterday as he was setting the stage up that I didn't really get serious about prayer until two years ago. And I'm 31. (laughs) That's 29 years. 29 years of praying sometimes. 
praying in a group setting, praying when others were praying, but not actually getting serious about prayer. And there's this crazy difficult wall to get through. It's easy to say it's hard to do. And I, I thought of my son when I, um, when I was talking to Christian about this, and I'll share this now. He's getting to the point where he's trying to hold his head up, he's trying to walk, he's trying to crawl, he's trying to stand, all these things. Um, and it's really difficult for him because he doesn't have the full strength yet. And so his head is often like this. It's kind of tilted, like a lot of the time. He'll hold it up for a while, and he gets tired. And then just, but he always lets it fall to the same side. It always falls to the same side. That's where he relaxes when he's sleeping in his little swing and he's swinging. Again, his head's tilted on one side. And so what can happen with infants, and you have to, you have to uh, watch this as a parent, what can happen with infants is they're, because they're developing, they can start developing like this. And their, their neck can start to get crooked. And uh, you can get flat spots on weird sides of the head. And then as the bones fuse, their head gets misshapen. Uh, it, it's crazy. Like, that's actually something you have to think about as a parent. This is my first kid, so these are all, like, revelations to me, you know? I'm Googling stuff all the time. And <laughs> I don't know what you parents did before Google, although you probably had a lot less fear because apparently everything's deadly. So, uh, <laughs> But as we were reading, like, all these tips, they were saying, you know, um, put a toy on his non-dominant side, his non-dominant side. Um, when you feed him, switch sides every single time so that his head is foot, foot, foot. Build the muscle in that one side. And so we started to do that. We actually set down a little toy for me. It's this little squirrel. We call him Mr. Squirrel because that's, you know, creative parents. Mr. Squirrel. And he loves Mr. Squirrel, so he'll always look and try to grab Mr. Squirrel. So whatever we side, we put that on. We put him on his tummy, put the squirrel off to the side, and he'll, he'll try to look over at it. Well, now he's stretching that muscle, stretching that muscle out. But it's difficult. And Kami lays down to him, next to him, and she starts encouraging him. Dimitri, look over here. Look over here, Dimitri. And he'll, he'll kind of like, for, he loves looking at mom. So he'll like kind of force over, and he'll get to the point where he's looking at her. But then you can see that tension. You can see that discomfort. And so his head will kind of snap back this way. And then he'll try again, and he'll push, and he'll push because he wants to see mom. And then he'll kind of snap back. And as we've been going through this process for, I don't know, a few, like almost a week now, he's starting to get to the point where he can look longer. And his head is slowly starting to, his neck is slowly starting to straighten out. And you can see the muscles are starting to build on that one side a little bit more. And he's starting to get more comfortable looking over at mom. But there's this wall he had to break through. Because for a little, like three and a half months, he's been doing this. In prayer, hearing God's will, it's the same thing. It's easy to say. It's hard to do. And for 29 years, I personally, and I think many of you can probably relate to this, didn't build up a whole lot of muscle on this side. And so it it takes a lot. It takes a lot of grinding, if you will, through prayer, awkwardly, trying to hear what God sounds like, trying to understand what when God says this is his will for your life, understanding what that actually sounds, feels, looks like. So much of our faith is strictly faith-based. God has spoken to some of us in here, myself included, like verbally before, but it's rare. Those who, there's many Christians who go their whole life never hearing a verbal word from God, and that's normal. You're not messed up. It is rare to hear a verbal word from God. He wants us to come to him through his word, through prayer, just like he told us to, and to start to understand what he sounds like that way. 
That's what he's seeking from us. And the more we do it, the more we force ourselves to go into prayer and pray these things and pray like, like the psalmist did and pray like uh, many, many of the figures in Scripture would often pray and to understand the way they prayed, we start to hear him more. We start to understand him more. And his will starts to make sense. His will starts to make sense. I think we struggle with this in two primary ways. The slowest down on understanding what, it, understanding what he sounds like. Number one is that we have specific things that we want in life. And so we pray about those things. Leaving out large parts of our lives. Like the whole thing. Rather than asking God, what is your will? We're like, this is what I want your will to be, please. <laughs> I pray that way all the time. Totally guilty of this. I pray that way all the time. When I hear him the clearest is when I stand back and I get quiet and I just ask, Lord, what do you want today? And then when I pray, your will be done, there are so many opportunities that he puts me in where I suddenly see his will without expecting to see it. And I realize because I condition my heart, whatever it is, Lord, your will be done, I was ready to see it. Rather than looking for that one thing, I just see the thing coming forward. Because my heart was in a very general, what's your will? Now, I don't want to excuse the portions of Scripture where he tells us to ask for things specifically. He absolutely does. God calls us to ask for things specifically. Ask within my will and they will be done for you. We asked uh, these things I mentioned, Ellie's mother and the, and the, the Hearts girls. We ask for these things specifically. And then we qualify in the same way Jesus did in the garden. If there's any way, may it be this way. Nevertheless, thy will be done. Nevertheless, it should always be on our lips. And we can't understand why. I'll be honest, when the, when the hearts got the girls in their house full time, I thought that was it. I was like, it's, it's done. <laughs> there will be no more court hearings. It's official. <laughs> and yet there's still this grind of, yeah, they're in the home full-time right now, but there's still court hearings to be had. The future's still uncertain. They're still walking by faith, and we're still praying by faith alongside them. God's will does not always look as clean and tidy as we expect it to, but we are to come to him with the heart of, your will be done. Ellie's mom, like the rest of us, will someday pass away. She was healed. Someday she's going to pass away. God's will is still accomplished. I think the second way in which we struggle with this is we pray assuming what the outcome should be. This could be based off of what we already know about God in Scripture, what we know about justice, what we know about rightness, what we know about everything that is good about God. We can often pray like, I know that this is an injustice, so I want an end to it. I know that this would be good for this person, so I want it to start. But Scripture doesn't show it that way. Scripture shows us coming to him and again seeking whatever it is. Your will be done because he sees a bigger picture. And in Proverbs, going all the way back, all the way back to Proverbs, this is Old Testament, King Solomon, Proverbs 16, 1 through 3, he understood this. He didn't even have the New Testament yet. It wasn't written. Honestly, Proverbs wasn't written. He was writing it. A lot of Scripture wasn't written yet. And he understood this. God gave him wisdom. Because he asked for it, wise man. 
says the reflections of the heart belong to mankind, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. All a person's ways seem right to him. Most of us aren't trying to do things wrong. (laughs) Most of us figure, when I think this is how it should be done, I actually mean it. This is probably how it should be done. That's how we filter things. All a person's ways seem right to him. I think I'm right all the time. But the Lord weighs motives because he sees the heart and he also is outside of space and time. So he sees the full picture that we can't possibly comprehend on our own. He sees things we're not ready for. He sees shots we're not ready to take. He sees all the way down the road. He sees every option. He knows the perfect way for things to play out. So Solomon says a wise thing. Commit your activities to the Lord and your plans will be established. He says that so simply and plainly. It's almost like this portion of prayer is being quoted as a proverb. It's, like, it's almost like that's what Jesus was using. Jesus used scripture all the time. But the context is accurate and congruent. Of course, it's scripture. Commit your activities to the Lord and your plans will be established. We need to stop coming in with our preconceived notions. It is okay to ask for specific things, but we are to leave that specific thing as a request and accept that his will is not necessarily exactly the way we see it. And that he's right. It's literally going to be better. It's literally going to be better the way he wants it done, whether we believe it or not. Something that Mike says often, and I want to reinforce here, um, is when we look to accomplish God's will, it's not not because he needs us. Scripture is very clear that we are, um, we're a, if we're a willing participant, we can be used, but we are a totally unnecessary participant. It's really fun. We were going through uh, 1 Samuel on Wednesday nights with the guys, and um, the gals do their study off in a separate room, and us guys, we, we come up here where the AC is. To be fair, we offered it to the ladies before everyone. They love the common room, so they prefer the common room. Um, but we come up here where the AC is, and uh, we sit here, we do our first Samuel studies. And, um, and Eli from YWAM actually came and shared. It was awesome. Um, came and shared. And um, in this passage we were reading about in Samuel is when the Ark of the Covenant is um, lost to the hands of the Philistines. And um, the, the priest Eli, not our Eli, the priest Eli was so devastated by that, so completely rocked by that, that he actually keeled over, fell over, broke his neck, and died. It's just devastating. Oh no, God's been defeated. The Ark of the Covenant gets passed around from Philistine camp to Philistine camp because everywhere it goes, everyone dies <laughs> and gets huge tumors, and there's rats everywhere, and it sucks. Because as it turns out, God don't need a man. <laughs> he doesn't need anyone in here. Not one of us. He doesn't need us. He can accomplish his will. He knocked over Dagon a few times. Broke his, broke his head off. <laughs> God doesn't need us to accomplish his will. He can accomplish it regardless of a person's input or lack of input. He doesn't need us. We seek God's kingdom to be established. And we want to input our efforts into his will because we want to be part of what he's doing. When that ark went from Philistine camp to Philistine camp, it didn't have to start with a bunch of dead Israelites. 
it didn't have to end with a bunch of dead Philistines. If they were willing to accomplish his will, they could have defeated them in battle, simple defeat in battle, shined his light, his salt, God's goodness to them. God's intentional, initial purpose for all of the world was to come to him. That's what, that's what the Israelites were supposed to be doing. They could have been part of that will. They could have been walking alongside God's will, defeating those who needed to be defeated in order to cleanse out all the wickedness, and then shining God's truth and offering him to everyone like they were supposed to. That was the whole purpose. They could have been part of that. Instead, we know how the story played out. Jesus came and sacrificed himself for us so that we might be grafted in, us lowly Gentiles, us filthy Gentiles, so we might be grafted in to the plan, light shown to us by Jesus himself through the apostles, throughout time, his word preserved, comes to us. His will was accomplished despite his people's disobedience. His will will be accomplished whether with or without our obedience. Whether with or without any of our obedience. God will accomplish the work he has decided to do in Coeur d'Alene if we're part of it or not. As a church, as a person, as a whole, the rest of the churches in town, even if we totally disagree on everything and we fight and we don't shine God's light and we become stuck up and pious like the Pharisees and we don't take care of widows and orphans and we don't feed the hungry, we don't reach into our community and accomplish God's will to act out his kingdom here now, he's still going to accomplish it. And on that day, we're either standing with him or apart from him. And that's it. We have a hundred years to do that. Each one of us, kingdoms at hand for every single one of us, because we have a hundred years or less, probably, for every one of us. You're crazy and you're like 130. God bless you. You had more than 100 years. Prove me wrong. Okay, I'll be dead by then, so don't worry about it. Like, <laughs> But we have one life, one little 100-year stint to be part of his will or against it. I'm going to have the worship team come up as, as we close here. I personally um, got to a point in life where I was sick of the work cycle that I was in. Um, not because working is bad or working a job is bad. Um, for most people, that's what God's called us to, is just to work a job, um, grow a family, provide for our family, um, be part of our, part of our church community, fellowship, take care of each other. That's what most of us are called to. Um, but God started to put on my heart that that's not what I was called to. And it just made me uncomfortable. He didn't really tell me something's wrong. I just started to feel like something's wrong. <laughs> Something is wrong. I need to be doing something. I'm not comfortable where I'm at. And this intense, uh, it got to the point where it was anxiety on my heart started to grow and grow and grow until I said, I have to do something about this. God is calling me to do something. I don't know what it is. So during a worship set, I prayed at Calvary Rathdrum with Mike back when he was back there. And I just prayed, I said, Lord, would you open a door? I, you're, I feel like you're calling me to something. So would you open a door that is within your will, and I will walk through it. Whatever it is, I'll walk through it. I want to walk through it, because I'm, I'm going stir-crazy here. 
And then after the worship set, <laughs> Mike walks up to me and he goes, hey, I just had a uh, leader drop out of this youth camp and I desperately need another guy leader who is an adult that has a clean record. Are you interested? By the way, it's on your anniversary. I was like, Pfft. uh, <laughs> immediately temptation to, I don't want to get in trouble with my wife, <laughs> but I promised God I would walk through that door, whatever the door was. And so I was like, uh-huh. I'll do that. Sure. So I went and did that. And here I am, youth pastor. <laughs> there was a few steps in the way, but I simply asked that God would reveal his will to me and call me into something. And he did. He did. I genuinely believe that in every group of believers, the size are even smaller. There is somebody in this room right now who has this calling from the Lord that they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing, that there's something else, that God's will for their lives is, um, is different. It doesn't mean greater or less or anything like that. It's just that it's different than what you're doing now. I genuinely think there's somebody in here like that. And so as we enter into a time of, of worship, I want to start off with, with a prayer. And I want to encourage whoever is sitting in here that is, is just thinking, I'm supposed to be doing something else. I, I, I invite you to pray that, to have the courage and faith to, to pray. God, open a door and I'll walk through it. I'm going to encourage you in prayer. And then my hope is that, that you, you go through with it because there's going to be temptation to not do it. I, my prayer is that you would go through with it. So let's pray. Lord, right now, I, I, I believe there's, there's got to be somebody in here or watching online um, or viewing this on YouTube later, I don't know, who, like me, was struggling with um, what they should be doing for your kingdom, what your will is for their life, because they, they haven't heard it clearly, they haven't seen it clearly. And I just pray that, that right now you would encourage, you would encourage them in, in faith to step out and to ask you for your will, and then upon hearing your will, that they would have the strength and faith to go through with it that they would follow after you and what you have for them all the days of their life. They wouldn't grow weary in that calling. And I just want to pray for everybody in here right now who is already doing what you've called them to, that again, you would strengthen them the rest of the days of their life and that they wouldn't grow weary in doing your will, in doing good for you. Show us your, your will as a group as well, Lord. We ask that um, you would lead us in this community and, and show us what we're here for and that we would bring your kingdom here now and not wait for heaven to happen, but that we'd be seeking your kingdom right here on earth, accomplishing your will. Lord, as we enter into a time of worship, we just pray that you're honored, worshiped, and blessed by the condition of our hearts.